Hello folks and the warmest of welcomes to another instalment of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, the premier North Wales spare room based one person and his cat true crime show that skips over those cases of real note and notoriety and instead seeks out for your listening those cases that aren't as familiar, they're often obscure and long forgotten tales from the darkest corners of the UK and Ireland. Bringing you these is myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. My beloved black and white assistant Menace Peaks is right here at my feet. And you guys are you guys doing whatever you do whilst you listen. The wonderful enthusiasts who make the show worthwhile and keep it my passion. It's as fabulous as it always is having you joining me here today, which I thank you so kindly for. And I do hope that as you're listening in, then you and all of yours are all good, all well, and you're all staying safe. So we've arrived at the final part of our impromptu series trilogy, The Monsters of Ayrshire Saga, and there's quite a bit to this episode, with some proper shock and horror moments, I do warn you, but which we shall get to shortly. As I said in the past couple of episodes, it wasn't intended as a trilogy, but these things do happen sometimes, don't they? And I can't promise that we won't have another this series also. It always depends how much of a rabbit hole there is to look into with the case in question. So my heartfelt thanks out first as always for the feedback that I've had concerning the Monsters of Ayrshire episodes to date which has been good and it's been really honest and I've even had offers of help with pronunciation should I cover any Scottish cases again in the future which I shall be doing of course and it's certainly an offer that I will consider so many thanks for who's offered that. We don't want another core stuff in, core stuff in debacle do we? No I'm just joshing as I said before. I pronounce places how they appear and sound to me. If I get them wrong, what can I say? I don't deliberately set out to pronounce stuff wrong. I'm just not a local from there. And if it really bothers you that much, well, maybe you shouldn't be so highly strung, shall we say. Thanks also to both my returning and new Patreon supporters of the show, with shout-outs going out this time for Kate Foss, Laura Banner, Heather Taylor, Emma Green, Kelly McMaster, who's edited a pledge, and Melody Moyer and Erin Moore, who have kindly opted to annually support the show. Thanks so much all, it's so very kind of you to do so, and it does mean the world that you do. Now if any of you guys listening in want to join this Motley Easter cruise and support the show, perhaps you want some swag and a shout out, then for less than the price of a pint that if you're in England, you can now enjoy outdoors, quicker than a middle class student jumping on a protest that they don't understand the ideology behind what they're protesting, You can do so by one of two ways. You can head over and seek out the True Crime Enthusiast podcast on the Patreon site, where you'll find it with the same show logo and all that jazz, and go from there. Or, there's a clickable link in the episode show notes each time, right down there with the support and the contact details for the enthusiast. And regardless of your chosen tier, access to unreleased bonus episodes such as The Bravo Two Heroes, Disfigured, Suffer the Little Children, and To Kill and Kill Again, to name just a few of them, is available to everyone. Now I shall be having a week's break following this episode going out, so I can crack on with bonus episode number 40, and I'm torn between a choice of two for this month. They will both come over time, I just don't know in which order, but one of them will drop before the month is out. I'd also like to remind folks that tickets for CrimeCon 2021, which is now taking place over the weekend of the 21st and 22nd of September down in London, are still available from the link in the episode show notes. It promises to be a great weekend jam-packed with all sorts from the world of true crime. There are high-profile guest authors and speakers, interactive and immersive features, and a whole lineup of your favourite show hosts, including myself, will be there, and from all the others that I've spoken to, because we do of course speak amongst ourselves as hosts. We can't wait to be taking part. We look forward to seeing some of you guys at the event to say hi to, chat true crime with, perhaps even put the world to rights with over a few beers afterwards, who knows. I just know it's going to be fab. And also, thanks to the organisers, if you think, oh wow yeah, I'm getting myself there, Then when you come to get your tickets at checkout, if you use the unique code ENTHUSIAST, you get your tickets at 10% off the cost of them. How ace is that? Any purchases are also protected, so in the event of a cancellation due to COVID purposes, I mean, stranger things have happened after all, then full refunds will be available to you. So what are you waiting for? I look forward to seeing you there at 10% off the cost of your tickets by using the code ENTHUSIAST.
Right then, to business, as it's time to finish our Monsters trilogy. Now if you haven't yet heard parts 1 and 2 of the Monsters of Asia, then I do advise that you head back and do that first before continuing here, or else the context of this part will make bugger all sense really, and as I've said before, who starts something at part 3 of something. Now if you are up to speed and raring to go, just a quick recap. In the previous episodes then, we've heard the horrendous tale of 16-year-old Kilmarnock teenager Mary Julian, who back in December 1995 was abducted, raped and murdered as she walked the mere mile home from a Christmas pantomime. We've heard of the investigation into a murder, the discovery of a suspect, Gavin Maguire, and the evidence that led to charges of rape and murder being raised against him. We've heard of the evidence given at his subsequent trial from a wealth of witnesses, forensic scientists, reliable and not-so-reliable people, even Maguire's own mother, that led ultimately to a unanimous guilty verdict and a life sentence for him with a minimum tariff of 30 years. We then heard of the effect that Mary's murder had had on those closest to her, her family, her boyfriend Jim, as well as others that the ripples of Maguire's evil had touched. And when I left the previous episode, I did so by saying that not only would we go on to look at the life and crimes of Mary's killer, Maguire, but also the reasons why he was even on the streets that December, and he was ultimately able to make sure that Mary never would walk them again. So let's do just that. The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and offences, including that of a sexual nature, and including that involving extreme animal cruelty that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing. So please use your discretion whilst you're listening in, folks. These events are recounted as detailed as I possibly could through researching, and are included as so not to offend or sensationalise, I hope that you know me by now. But because we go all or nothing here on the show as ever, and I want to bring home to you exactly what a monster we're talking about here. So bearing that in mind, Please join the True Crime Enthusiast for the final part of the series Monsters of Asia episodes for an episode entitled The Beast in the Cage. So in the wake of his life sentence, Maguire was now completely disowned by the last member of his family willing to give him any time, his mother, Nettie. Both of his younger brothers had long since cut him off, indeed, the feelings towards Maguire from his siblings is best summed up by a report that was published in the Daily Record newspaper in the wake of his conviction for Mary's murder, following reporters speaking to his brother Barry, and which I'll recount here. Four years his notorious brother's junior, Barry Maguire seethed, proper filled with venom, as he told the newspaper from his home in the Pennyburn area of the North Ayrshire town of Kilwinning, they should bring back the rope for Gavin and put us all out of the misery he causes us. He is scum, a beast. I stopped speaking to him when he was in jail 20 years ago. I never went to see him in jail, and I never will. I should have suspected Gavin because of the day that wee lassie was killed. He was in Kilmarnock. My mother suspected him. She shed many tears over Gavin. She asked him long before he was arrested if he'd done it, but he denied it. My heart goes out to Mary's family. I wish he was dead. Not much chance of a bloody Christmas card there then, eh? That's his own brother describing him, that is. Remembered as being a strange and unsavoury character, an outsider with few social skills and unable to form close relationships, Gavin Maguire had been born the eldest son of Nettie and Jimmy Maguire on the 18th of December 1958 in the Ayrshire town of Stevenston, where as a toddler, the most common and recalled sight of him would be of him playing with his father's pigeons around the pigeon kit he had built in the backyard. Although his father Jimmy had steady employment as a labourer in the local steel industry, he would spend as much as he earned on drinking and gambling, practices which carried on even after he was made redundant and didn't have the funds to do so. As a result, money in the household was tight, and the resulting fights and arguments between his parents over this meant that the Maguire home was not the happiest one, with the three boys, Gavin and his younger brothers Barry and Mark, often overlooked and being left completely to their own devices, with each of them even spending numerous periods of time in the care system. 
By the time his parents had separated for good in 1964, Gavin had started his school in Hayox Primary School in Stevenston, where he was remembered by classmates from the time as a loner who would sit by himself and not mix with other pupils, a trait which he was to carry throughout his schooling and indeed his life, making few friends for himself. By the time he was only a couple of years into this schooling, however, he'd begun to get involved in petty crimes such as criminal damage and shoplifting, leading to him spending time in approved schools, or List D schools as they were known in Scotland, and remand homes. Rehabilitation was seemingly out of the question for him, and Maguire continued in this vein as he aged, by his early teen years having moved on to offences such as car theft and burglary. As his offending escalated in seriousness, this also led on to tougher punishments for him, periods of borstal training and time in young offenders institutions, meaning that by the time he was attending secondary school, Ocken Harvey Academy in Stevenston, he was only ever a fleeting figure there, barely remembered. Except for two particularly nasty incidents. When Maguire was 14 years old, he one day, for reasons unexplained, took a full canister of petrol, poured it over his father's pigeon kit, stood back and then set it alight, burning alive the pigeons that he had so loved to play with as a small child. Not content with such horror, Maguire soon afterwards repeated the same horrific stunt with rabbits that he'd caught, merely standing there gleefully laughing as he burned the animals alive. I didn't know how to address that and what to say to it really. It's just horrendous. That's just evil itself that, isn't it? What on earth possesses people to do such things? Just can't get my head round it. A former pupil at Ocken Harvey, who was in the same year as Maguire, said following his conviction, I wish they could string him up for what he's done. I remember him torching those poor animals. He showed no remorse whatsoever for what he'd done. He is really, truly evil. You're not seeing me arguing there, mate. By the time he'd reached 17, Maguire had spent more time in List D schools and borstals than in any form of regular education and was academically a non-starter. He had by this time, however, made himself a few acquaintances, perhaps not friends as such, but a crowd that he hung around on the fringes of and whom he would tag along with. A former acquaintance of his from Stevenson recalled, When we were about 15 or 16, we used to buy drink and go up the castle. Gavin would come with us, but whenever there was a mention of women, he just seemed to disappear. When I think about it now, it was as if he was afraid or shy of women. Forget afraid or shy, Maguire was soon to prove that his overwhelming feeling towards women was hatred. In 1976, still only 17 years old, Maguire had been out of a borstal for just five months when he one afternoon viciously attacked a 15-year-old schoolgirl from Ocken Harvey Academy. He knocked her to the ground on a footpath in Stevenston, punched her savagely in the face and even bit her nose before her screams alerted help and he ran off as passers-by approached. Then, only a couple of days later, Maguire struck again this time attacking a 15-year-old holidaymaker. The young woman was grabbed from behind, was punched repeatedly, and was then dragged by her hair to a patch of waste ground where Maguire began to sexually assault her, only stopping when he was forced to flee when passers-by came to her aid. The third victim in Maguire's first phase, yeah, his first phase, was attacked just two days after this. The girl, Rosine Bain, who was 16 years old at the time, told the Daily Record newspaper 20 years later how one afternoon she was walking to her boyfriend Neil Boyd's house in Stevenston when Maguire suddenly appeared and pounced on her. She recalled, He banged into me and pushed me up against the wall. He snarled something like, You're coming with me. You won't be happy and it's not going to be nice. There was evil in his face. I'll never forget it, but I had a bag of shopping in my hand at the time and I just whacked him between the legs with it. When he took his hand off me, I ran. By the time I looked back, he was away. 
Now, although a shaken Rosine told Neil what had happened, she didn't tell her family or report this to police right away because she was worried about what her father's reaction would be. But the following day, police officers making routine inquiries about the previous two attacks came around to the shop where she worked. They had a description of the youth who had attacked the two teenage girls in the Stevenston area over the previous few days, and Rosine realised that this was her attacker, although it isn't reported if she told police this at the time. Then, two days later, she was out with Neil when she spotted her attacker once again. Neil later recalled, Rosine went chalk white. I asked her what was up, and she said he was the guy who had attacked her. I did a U-turn in the middle of the road and ran over and confronted him. He couldn't look me in the eye, and me and another chap got him in his car and then took him to the police station. But after he appeared at court, he was allowed bail, and then he went out and raped my cousin. Yes, I haven't said that wrong. Arrested for these offences, when Maguire initially came to court in Kilmarnock, the sheriff court, and totally rightly in my opinion, refused him bail and remanded him in custody. But the following month, an appeal to the High Court overturned this decision and Maguire was released on bail of just £10. Released for a tenor for three attacks on women that even bloody daredevil could see were undoubtedly attempted sexual attacks. Big mistake. Whilst he was on bail for these offences, only days after being released, Maguire committed two robberies at garages in Stevenston, in one of which he assaulted a heavily pregnant woman cashier, kicking her to the ground as he fled. A week later, he attacked another woman whom he'd followed, grabbing her and attempting to pull her to the ground, although Maguire was forced to flee when a car approached. A young woman we shall name only as Jeanette wasn't as lucky later that same day, however. Jeanette, then 23 years old, had been out that afternoon to visit a friend and do some shopping, and was on her way home when Maguire accosted her. 20 years later, she told the Daily Record newspaper, I'd been to my pal Margaret's house and I missed the bus on the way home, so I started walking. He suddenly jumped out on me and took me up a close at Stevenston Cross. He kept a bit of glass at my throat all the time so I couldn't move. He shoved me down and with the glass at my throat stripped me and then raped me. Now by all accounts, and not in the least surprisingly, Maguire's sickening assault on Jeanette had blighted her life throughout the 20 years following it even leading to her requiring psychiatric support for several years afterwards. Now Maguire was arrested for this offence, and this time was not bailed on appeal, but was instead kept remanded in custody. When Maguire finally came to court, appearing at the High Court in Ayr in 1977, he was to admit culpability to eight charges amounting to rape, serious assault with sexual intent to ravish, two counts of assault, two counts of robbery, theft of a motor car and theft of money and for these offences he was sentenced to serve 10 years imprisonment being sent to serve this in a young offenders institution and where he was released on licence from after serving just six years in October 1983. Now we shall continue following a short word from the episode sponsors. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now we're coming through what's been some of the darkest times that we've all faced, aren't we? And many of us are still finding things difficult. Personally, I've found the latter part of it all quite challenging. I've experienced personal loss. Like others, I've been separated for long periods from the people closest to me. I'm trying to ensure that I'm there for them as best I can be, doing what I can and striving to get that decent balance between my personal life, my work life, fitting the show in between. Well, it can be tough and it can be trying. So if there's something that's preventing you from achieving goals like this or is interfering with your happiness, this is where BetterHelp can help you. Now just to clarify, BetterHelp isn't self-help, I must stress that. Instead, what you'll find BetterHelp does is assesses the issues you may be facing and calling upon its broad range of expertise available, matches you up with your own licensed professional therapist for professional counselling, with specialists in a vast range of issues available. 
some of which you may not have locally available to you, and one selected that best suits your needs. For whatever is bothering you, any issues you may have from depression to sleeping troubles, in less than 24 hours, you can start communicating with your own personal counsellor in a safe and confidential online environment. A counsellor who you can schedule weekly phone or video sessions with, who you can message anytime you wish, and from whom you'll get timely, thoughtful responses and feedback from. BetterHelp is available for clients worldwide, is a much more affordable service than traditional offline counselling, and even has financial aid available for you to use the service should it be needed. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com forward slash TCE and join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com forward slash T-C-E. This episode is brought to you by Best Fiends. Now, whenever I've got an ounce of free time, it's Best Fiends that I go to and plough through level after level of, and I know that once you have a go and play too, you'll be doing the same because it's fab, the fun just doesn't stop with it. The makers of Best Fiends have created a colourful world called Minutia, which contains thousands of different levels across areas such as the Endless Desert right through to the Wayward Waters, and where, by collecting colourful and fun little characters such as Newt, Carmen and Whisper to name just a few, you can use them in your quest through to destroy slugs and crates, explode bombs, fire off rockets and collect diamonds, as each bring their own unique little skills to the table to assist you and help you progress. It's a casual enough game so you can play and enjoy it stress-free, but for the puzzle-minded, it's equally a strategy game that makes you ponder, and each time I'm playing Best Fiends, I'm always finding something new with it. It might be new challenges, new events, and always plenty of new levels for you to put your mind to. I always like that, and right now, I'm hundreds of levels up on it. In these times of social distancing we currently face, Best Fiends is also great for staying in touch with those friends that you can't see right now, as you can stay connected by playing alongside them and share your progress on the leaderboard, or you can just kick back and enjoy playing Best Fiends by yourself, because you don't even need to be connected online to do so. If you're totally over the same old puzzle games, you'll discover then that this awesome mobile puzzle game really is the game for you, and you need look no further because it's so much more than your average. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. When Maguire had been released on licence from his 10-year sentence in October 1983, having served just six years, his Member of Parliament at that time, John Corrie, demanded an inquiry to discover why exactly Maguire had been bailed for the first three offences, which had left him free to be able to carry out further vicious attacks, including a full rape, but Corrie had no success in bringing about an inquiry. He said later, I felt at the time there was something far wrong with this, and I remember raising it in the Commons. I can't remember whether I did it by question or letter, but I certainly remember going to discuss it with the law officers. I felt at the time that the sentence wasn't fitting of the crimes. So, no inquiry happened, Maguire was out on licence, and the following year appeared again in Paisley Sheriff's Court, this time to face charges of assault and robbery, although there are no further details available concerning the victims or circumstances of this. Now, instead of being recalled to prison, however, he was fined just £100 for this, and was left free to blight another life just two years later in 1986. Now, the following contains disturbing descriptions of a sexual attack that I've included in as much detail as is available here. I shouldn't need to explain my reasons for doing so at all, you know how we are on the show, as I said at the start, but because I want to bring home to you the fact that these are the actions of someone that it was so fit to release on licence the true horror of what Maguire is, like that already needed doing, I'm sure. Speaking to the Daily Record ten years after the event, and even bravely returning to the scene of a harrowing, horrific ordeal to do so, 
43-year-old Doris Thompson recalled how one evening back in the warm weather of April 1986, the then 33-year-old was on holiday at the Sandylands campsite in the town of Saltcoats, adjacent to Stevenston, with the husband Clark and the couple's children, Mandy, Billy, Julie, Carol and baby Michael, who was then just nine months old. One evening, midway through their break, Doris had been out with Clark and two other relatives of theirs for a few drinks, but there'd been a row and the party got split up. After waiting outside the pub for Clark for several minutes, who unbeknownst to Doris had actually stormed off back to the campsite, when he didn't show up, Doris decided to walk back to their caravan via a stop at the public toilets at the seafront on Seaview Road. By the time she'd reached the toilet, she was attacked from behind. Doris recalled, I quote, He grabbed me by the throat to stop me shouting. He told me to come with him, but when I started to struggle, he warned me not to, then punched me hard in the face. I thought, God, we've got a right one here. He woke me up to a summer seat on the seafront and made me lie on my back. Then he pressed his hand hard against my throat. I could feel myself blacking out and heard the click of him squeezing my throat. So hard was it. He told me to take off my pants and tights, then grabbed the tights and told me to open my mouth. I thought he was going to gag me, but he instead put them round my throat and held them there like a dog's choker chain. A taxi then pulled up and he pushed me back onto the bench. I stared between the spars and did everything I could to draw attention to myself. I could even see people watching TV in the flats across the road, but no one noticed. Then he marched me on again, and all the time he was raving and swearing. He was saying things like, You're a big girl, but you haven't learned to take care of yourself properly. He just kept on repeating it and laughing. It's a laugh I'll never forget. During the journey, Doris kicked off one of her shoes, hoping that Maguire, because of course that's who we're talking about here, haven't gone off random about some other bloody unsavoury scumbag or anything, hoping that he would bend down to pick it up, leaving her an opportunity to wriggle free. The ploy worked and he did so, and seizing the opportunity, Doris took to her heels and ran screaming towards a caravan. But just feet from the door, Maguire caught up with her. Doris continued. He grabbed me and punched me hard in the face and on the mouth, and I lost a tooth. He hit me so hard in the stomach that I could hardly breathe. Then he took me over to the pier and squeezed me into a hole in the sea wall. He made me strip until I was completely naked. I was crying, but I realised the more I showed I was scared, the more of a kick he seemed to get, so I tried to calm myself down. Maguire then made Doris lie down in the hole in such a way that her head was facing the pier, enabling him to watch for anyone coming. Before he then began his disgusting assault upon her, he asked Doris her name and where she lived. She gave him a false name and address, and then told him to hurry up and do what he wanted, and to then leave her alone. She recalled, I said to him that I had children, including a baby of nine months. He replied, I hope you said cheerio to him before you left tonight then, because you'll never get the chance to ever say cheerio again. You don't even want to imagine, do you? How terrifying that must have been. Then, sneering at her, or perhaps smirking, because he does smirk after all, doesn't he, Maguire? Maguire spat. I hope you've left plenty of pictures for him, because he will never know his mother. When Doris then refused to perform indecent sexual acts upon him, Maguire became enraged, but Doris bravely told him he would be better just to leave. He ignored this and forced her onto her back, continuing to threaten and taunt her about her children. Eventually, he stopped and told her to put her dress back on, which she did, but as Doris searched for the rest of her clothes, he told her, You're not going to need them, are you? Gripping her then by the throat, Maguire forced Doris to empty a handbag before pushing her to the edge of the rocks and ordering her to throw it into the sea. Then he began punching her again, she recalled. At the water's edge, he gave me the most hellish punch in the stomach and then punched me in the face again. He got a hold of me by the throat 
this time with both of his hands and started squeezing. I saw the frenzied look on his face and I felt my neck click. I thought of my children and how badly I wanted to see my baby. As he squeezed, I slipped down to my knees, praying to God that I'd convinced him I was dead. Although her limp body fooled Maguire and he dropped her to the ground, even then his onslaught was merciless. Screaming and shouting abuse, he kicked her several times full force between the legs, and playing dead by sheer act of determination, Doris didn't even wince, although in agony, feeling a pain like she'd never felt before. Then Maguire picked her up by the hair and the back of her dress and hurled her over the sea wall into the water. As the waves moved up and down, the barely conscious Doris stole a glance over at the pier and saw Maguire standing there watching her body. However, he didn't stay long and she let the tide take her into the harbour wall where as soon as she was able to feel the seabed beneath her feet, she hid in the water struggling to get her breath back. Then Maguire reappeared and started running frantically up and down the rocks searching for her body. At one point stood only feet from where she was cowering in the water, Doris recalled. I was terrified that he'd turn round and see me, so I took a mouthful of air and went under the water. I knew if he saw me, he'd finish me off this time. I moved right out into the sea and hid. Fortunately, a strong swimmer, when she'd recovered enough strength, Doris swam further up the shore and bleeding from cuts all over her battered and severely bruised body, checked that the area was clear and then sprinted for the first house that she could see. There are no words, are there? How truly horrifying is that? I found it one of the most disturbing accounts that I'd ever come across. And I had to give it in Doris's own words as much as I could because you need to get that full sense of horror there. It's horrendous. The occupants of the house that the battered, almost delirious with fear woman had arrived at immediately contacted police, who after taking Doris to hospital and informing her devastated family, began an investigation. And who better to have as a witness than Doris herself? Reportedly, just the following night and the night after, police disguised her with a shawl and glasses and took her on a tour of the pubs and clubs in the area, hoping that she may spot her attacker from the description that she'd given. Either she's an incredibly brave woman, and being so open about such a horrific ordeal at any time says to me that she really is, or police weren't as sensitive back then as they are today. Perhaps it was a bit of both different times back then wasn't it finally a few days after the assault doris was leaving a fish and chip shop on saltcoats countess street with her husband and children when she spotted maguire going into bobby's bar a pub on the same street her blood running cold she dragged her husband and children inside where sure enough the man who had raped her and left her for dead was stood at the bar Doris walked right up to him and took off her glasses, telling him, Are you not speaking to me? Maguire looked away, but she persisted in confronting him, and when he said he didn't know her, Doris said, Yes you do, I'm the woman you tried to murder on the beach. The husband Clark then rushed over and punched Maguire as hard as he could in the face. Customers pulled them apart and grappled with Maguire until police arrived, them being summoned some moments before such eruption was it. Maguire, knowing that the game was up for him, was arrested and went quietly with police. Originally charged with rape and attempted murder, when Maguire appeared at the High Court in Air for trial later that same year in August 1986, his counsel had managed to get a plea bargain in for him and Maguire instead pleaded guilty to a lesser charge of attempted rape and assault to severe injury and danger of life. The presiding judge, Lord Dunpark, in sentencing Maguire to 10 years imprisonment, described him as, I quote, a menace to society and particularly to women, a very dangerous man indeed. So, although Doris did get the satisfaction of seeing Maguire jailed, she never had the chance to tell a story in court, 
which if she'd done so, and it was told in as horrific words as I've described here, perhaps would have increased that sentence. At the time of the interview where she gave the tale that I've just recounted, ten years after the attack, Doris had reportedly never ever again been away for a holiday, all such celebrations ceasing to exist, the fear and trauma of Maguire's attack holding her prisoner. Even ten years later, she would still not go out alone, such were the repercussions of his actions. As I've said before several times on the show, the ripples of evil really do travel far, and they really do last, don't they? For the second time in his life then, Maguire was looking at a ten year stretch for sexual offences, by now completely ostracised from people who knew him growing up, and even his two younger brothers. He had had few real friends as it was, but one who occasionally hung around with him at the time told the Daily Record years later how now, nobody wanted anything to do with him. The former friend said, When he got out after the first rape in 1977, I used to go out drinking with him. Everybody is entitled to the benefit of the doubt. Everyone is allowed one mistake. But after the one in 1986, no one would speak to him again. Raping someone isn't a bloody mistake though. It's unsurprising that he was ostracised as well, isn't it? What surprised me is that there was even anyone willing to give him the time of day even before his first incarceration, especially after hearing his sickening actions towards animals. I mean, I can't see how you see past or even forget stuff like that, do you? I'd want someone responsible for doing something as horrific as that nowhere near me, let alone to have a pint with. Bloody hell, what's the matter with people? So, barring a brief trip out for the day, handcuffed to prison officers from Peterhead Prison to attend his father's funeral, following Jimmy Maguire's death aged 52 in 1987, Maguire remained behind bars past the turn of the decade, but was again on the streets in 1993, having been released early again on licence. By this time, Maguire had been housed in the Longbar estate in the town of Kilburnie, some 10 miles away from his old haunts of Stevenston and Saltcoats, now being totally unwelcome there. Indeed, many of his former acquaintances suspecting that wherever he was, he was merely a time bomb, a former classmate recalled. The first time he got lifted for rape, I was surprised, but after he was released the second time, all the guys in town said it was only a matter of time before some poor bugger got it. He should never have been released. He's a dangerous, dangerous guy. But released he had been, and immediately made himself a memorable figure around the Longbar estate. A former neighbour of Maguire's from here said, He was a real strange guy. He would cycle around on his racing bike, and would always just stop and stare at people. He was a real weirdo. Now, Maguire was reportedly back in the High Court in Glasgow the following year, where he was found not proven on a charge of assaulting and attempting to murder a sex worker. I say reportedly, because there's very little information about this charge that I could find. Although it is mentioned by the year in a number of sources I use for researching and writing the episodes, this quite possibly, however, may just be misreporting concerned with the next incident we know of that Maguire was involved with which certainly can be substantiated. In August 1995, sometime around the second weekend of that month, a 21-year-old woman named Lorna Andrew was attacked by Maguire, and in the course of defending herself, bit his right index finger very hard, hard enough to draw blood and leave a severe mark. She alerted the police after Maguire fled, drawing attention to the fact that she'd injured him in such a way and where and after she'd recognised him in the street, eight days after the assault, he was arrested. The wound to his finger was photographed by police, and Maguire was charged in relation to the attack. Charged with assault with intent to commit rape and robbery, Maguire appeared at Kilmarnock Sheriff Court on Monday the 21st of August 1995, where he was remanded in custody whilst the police and procurator fiscal investigated the matter further. His trial for said charges due to begin just over three months later on Tuesday the 28th of November. However, 
One day before his trial was due to begin, on Monday the 27th of November, Maguire was liberated by the Crown on the grounds that there was insufficient evidence in law to provide corroboration, which is required by Scots law, and so to proceed with the trial. Freed from custody, he moved back into his mother's bungalow in Glen Cairn Street in Stevenston, where for the next two weeks or so, kept a low profile, only ever leaving the house to walk his mother's dog. But just 19 days after he'd been released from custody, he went Christmas shopping in Kilmarnock, the night that he raped and murdered 16-year-old Mary Julian. So Maguire should still have been in custody when Mary died, because there was sufficient and strong evidence to link him to the attack on Lorna, which, combined with his track record, he would unquestionably have been convicted of, and which would have kept him in custody for several years to come and made sure that a 16-year-old girl walking home from a pantomime made it home to her family. It's a proper what-the-fuck moment, that, isn't it? Following Maguire's conviction for Mary's murder, a spokesperson for the Crown Office had said, The decision to liberate Maguire before his trial was taken on the basis of a careful consideration by the Advocate Depute and the Lord Advocate, of all the evidence which was then available. Their assessment was that there was insufficient evidence in law to provide corroboration. Now, police had Lorna's testimony and they'd photographed the bite mark to Maguire's finger, but bizarrely, this was never immediately followed up. Lorna later explained, I told them that I'd bitten his finger and they took a photograph of it, but it stopped there. It was only after he was arrested for Mary's murder that I was taken to Glasgow, told to bite my own finger, and photographs were then taken to compare the marks. Why didn't they do that first time around? If they had, Mary would still be alive. Why indeed, eh? Isn't that mind-boggling that something so obvious and important to do wasn't carried out almost immediately? or in the very least, in the time that Maguire had spent on remand. What an absolute, absolute disgrace. It transpired that the Lord Advocate, Lord Mackay and prosecutors, when considering the proceedings, had not asked for such a simple consideration to be made, vital evidence that would have convicted Maguire, despite having a leading forensic scientist, Professor Peter Venizis, who would have been able to give evidence that the bite marks matched. Instead, it was two months after Mary had died that this comparison was actually made. Two months after. And incidentally, in the wake of the charges he subsequently received following Mary's murder and his subsequent conviction, Maguire has never faced further charges for the attack on Lorna. Yet another slap in the face for victims of the beast. Following this revelation then, furious local MP Brian Donohoe called for an immediate probe into why Maguire was freed to kill, claiming, There were blunders by the Crown Office that left this guy free. I will be asking for an inquiry into this, and if that's not satisfactory, I will raise it in the Commons. Some people inside the Crown Office should get 30 years as well. Too bloody right they should. Cunningham North MP Brian Wilson agreed, saying, the Secretary of State for Scotland must order a full inquiry into all aspects of the Maguire case. It has again exposed gaping holes in the Scottish penal system as it relates to sex offenders. There was a warning which was not taken. Maguire did strike again. He was arrested and released. We are entitled to a full explanation from the Lord Advocate. Mary Julian would not have died if the Lorna Andrew charges had been pursued properly. Now reportedly, the Maguire case was a turning point in Scottish law that led to harsher sentences for those convicted of offences of a sexual nature, as well as the close supervision of those released on licence from these, to ensure as best as possible they were not released whilst posing a risk of re-offending. And of course, more stringent and absolute establishment of evidence amounting to a case before initiating, or cancelling, trial proceedings. But this came too late for Mary and her family, her loved ones and friends, didn't it? 
and the other people scarred for life by Maguire, how must they have felt in the wake of all of this transpiring? Take Jeanette, the woman he'd raped whilst holding a piece of glass to her throat almost 20 years before. Now reportedly, Jeanette had not heard of Maguire again following his incarceration in 1977 for, amongst other things, her rape, though she was to admit not a day passed when she didn't think about him. In June 1996, she told the Daily Record newspaper, I've tried to forget about him. I try so hard to keep him out of my head, but it's hard. So, try and imagine if you can, the shock and horror she must have felt when Maguire was named as the man being held over the tragic murder of Mary Julian. Nightmares proper must have come flooding back there, mustn't they? She knew he'd been caged for a total of 10 years after she was raped, but she was appalled to find out he'd been freed from this sentence after just six years. And although she was stunned and sickened to learn that he'd been sentenced to another 10 years imprisonment in 1986 for the rape of another woman, she said she was not surprised to hear Maguire was to blame. Jeanette said, If I'd known he was out again after serving another 10 years, I would have been very worried. I thought he might have changed after the 10 years he got for my rape, but he should never have gotten back out after getting another 10. This time, I hope they lock him up and I hope they throw away the key. Anybody who does what he's done is evil, pure evil. He'll never change. I don't think he ever will either. Another woman whom Maguire had left scarred for life, Doris Thompson, whom he'd raped and left for dead back in 1986, said in the wake of his conviction, Justice has been done as far as I'm concerned. He got what he deserved. Now I'll be able to sleep at night without worrying about him coming back to get me. But she too was filled with criticism over the decision to release Maguire in November 1995. She hit out. I feel hurt that Mary had to die because he'd been freed from jail again. If he'd not been released, that poor young girl would still be alive. There's no way around it, is there? She wouldn't have died, not at his hands anyway. But Maguire was now back in jail, and what's the first and best way to begin and try and make amends for something awful and tragic that actions cause? By making sure that they never happen again, by doing whatever it takes to keep a monster like Maguire off the streets. And when he was first incarcerated for Mary's murder, detectives considered that the best way to ensure he never again set foot outside of a prison was to investigate the possibility that Maguire was responsible for other unsolved deaths, with the possibility of further charges being brought, convictions being obtained, and further life sentences ensuring that that key was well and truly thrown away from Maguire. They immediately set about looking into unsolved crimes that Maguire could have possible culpability in, and pretty soon there were two names from police files that kept cropping up. Elaine Doyle, and Shona Stevens. In June 1996 then, Maguire was taken from top security Peterhead Prison, where he'd soon been moved to, after beginning his life sentence, under an armed police escort. Over several days, in a series of taped interviews, Maguire was questioned for six hours at a time over the murders of both of these women, as a suspect can only be in accordance with Scott's law, and after each session, was taken to Barlini Prison to spend the night in a cell before being brought back to Maryhill, Scotland's most secure police station, the next day for interviews to continue. But after seven full days of questioning, Maguire was returned to Peterhead Prison. No further charges have ever reportedly been raised against him. Now the details of Shona's murder will feature in an upcoming episode looking at some of the unsolved cases that Scotland holds, so I won't cover them here just yet, and I also won't go into the facts of the murder of Elaine Doyle here, though it is a tale I will feature at some point in the future on the show, or perhaps Patreon, I don't know as yet, as it's since been solved and Maguire is not Elaine's killer. For those curious about the case, I do believe that Bethan and Mark have covered it over on Seeing Red in one of their past series, if you want to head over there and have a listen. Where Elaine's case does have relevance in our tale is that Elaine's killer, during his trial at the High Court in Edinburgh in May 2014, 
lodged a defence of incrimination, claiming that Elaine's real killer might be one from among a list of 41 names of males taken from files of the police investigation. Several of these names were eliminated, and several more appeared at the trial to give evidence, summoned as witnesses, including one Gavin Maguire, who the defence leaned very strongly towards being the actual killer. And it was here that Maguire was only for the first time to admit his culpability in Mary's murder. When Maguire appeared as a witness, defence QC Donald Findlay said he did not intend to directly accuse Maguire of Elaine's murder, but out of all the 41 names on the list, it was he who best fitted the profile of Elaine's killer. Maguire replied, I know that is what everybody is saying, what the experts are saying. That's why they came to me. What I will suggest is that, undoubtedly, you could have been the killer of Elaine Doyle, said the lawyer. Maguire replied, I didn't kill Elaine Doyle. Unwavering, Mr. Finley drew attention to the fact that Mary and Elaine, two slim, pretty 16-year-olds, both had long, dark red hair. He showed Maguire photos of both girls and asked, does that not make you shiver, Mr. Maguire? Almost freaky how similar they look. Maguire agreed. Finley then grilled Maguire about Mary's murder, asking him how it felt to look into her eyes as she died. Maguire replied, I don't think I felt anything at the time. I killed the girl. I don't want to go into graphics. Finley also asked him what had triggered the brutal murder, to which Maguire responded, it was simply a moment of madness. Mr. Finley then highlighted to Maguire that the murders of the two 16-year-olds, Elaine's in 1986, committed just seven weeks after Maguire's horrific salt coats rape that we heard of earlier, and Mary's nine years later were, I quote, as close to identical as you could get. There are so many similarities that maybe, just maybe, I put it no higher than that, that they were committed by the same person. The only person on the face of this earth who committed both of them, because you committed the murder of Mary Julian, is you. Do the right thing, and ensure an innocent man cannot be convicted of murdering Elaine Doyle. Maguire replied, No, I did not kill Elaine Doyle. And it's probably one of the only times that Maguire has ever been truthful in a courtroom this because, as I said, he didn't kill Elaine Doyle. Her murder was solved, albeit some 28 years after it occurred. But Shona's murder, however, is very much still unsolved, and along with this, there are a few other cases that Maguire has been linked to as a person of interest in, including a couple that have long since thought been detected, with persons being convicted of murder, although those found guilty constantly maintaining their innocence of the crimes. You never know what we shall cover here on the show in the future, is all I can say. Now, no further charges have ever reportedly been brought against Maguire. I have to stress that. But if I had to define the type of person who wouldn't bat an eyelid about someone else serving a life sentence for a crime that he himself had committed, then being totally innocent of it, a total wrongful conviction, then the type of person I would define there would be Gavin Maguire he would probably see it as a victory, and the smirk would be there for all to see. And Maguire would undoubtedly have been smirking once again back in 2002, just six years after copping his 30-year minimum tariff life sentence, when new European human rights laws brought in changes forcing the courts to review all murder sentences that were passed down in Scotland. Before these changes, sentences passed by judges had taken into account three factors. Punishment, deterrence and danger to the public. But the latter, danger to the public, was now considered to be a matter for the parole board's attention, who would ultimately be responsible for deciding when lifers were fit to be released on licence, judges being left to impose merely the punishment phases. As a result, Maguire applied to have his minimum sentence re-examined and set, and on the 30th of September 2002, at the High Court in Edinburgh, his 30-year minimum term was reduced to a minimum term of 22 years. 
This is in spite of everything that was known about Maguire's life and his past history of sexual violence, and the disastrous decisions made before that had led to him being back on the streets, able to cause more carnage and spread more heartache. I know, right? As a result, the decision meant that having served his minimum term, Gavin Maguire would now be eligible to apply for parole in 2018. Now the decision angered and shocked citizens of the Kilmarnock area, who remembered all too well the horror of Mary's murder nearly seven years before. Mary's best friend Julie Holland, at the time of the ruling a student psychiatric nurse, was especially critical of it, telling the Glasgow Herald newspaper in the wake of the decision. I couldn't believe it when my dad told me after hearing the decision. I'm very upset. I feel it's just very irrational. It has taken until now for the wounds to heal after Mary's death. This decision has reopened them. As I'm sure it would have done, wouldn't it? However, after reviewing Maguire's sentence and making this reduction, presiding justice Lord Drummond Young was at pains to explain, I quote, I am not concerned with protection of the public. That is now a matter entrusted entirely to the parole board. The punishment period of 22 years should in no way be regarded as a reduction of Lord Clyde's original recommendation either. It is the result of a different exercise, and I regard it as a period close to the maximum that can be imposed. Why only close to? Why not the maximum? Do you not know what this guy's like? Now, although Maguire was now able to apply for parole in 16 years from the decision, so as recently as just three years ago in 2018, it is a decision of the parole board as to whether a man with such a history of violent sexual assault bordering on attempted murder, and then who went on to commit a murder described as an atrocity without mercy, can ever safely be let back on the streets. And there are a good few many people the people in Kilmarnock, in Saltcoats, hopefully all of you guys listening also, who hope that never happens and any of Maguire's pleas will fall on deaf ears. His appalling record of violent sex crime meaning the parole board will force him to spend the rest of his life behind bars. He remains a serving prisoner to this day. Do you see what I mean and why I chose the case of the Beast of Kilmarnock, the Beast of Saltcoats, wherever you want to class him as from, he's pretty much the beast of that area, Gavin Maguire, for the subject of this series Monsters of Episodes. What else do you describe a predator such as that? I mean, just 19 days he'd been free after his third incarceration for sexual offences alone, that unbelievably the charges against him for were not proceeded with, when prosecutors didn't seek out his victim to compare her bite mark with a bite mark to Maguire's right index finger, which would undoubtedly have convicted him, locked him away for many more years, and ensured that tragic Mary would have made it home that evening, wouldn't she? Why was such an important and simple evidential comparison not obtained immediately or during the several months that Maguire was on remand? Surely even a look at this individual's previous history of offending although it couldn't of course be referred to in court at his trial, but just to look at it, and anybody reading it who hasn't got the brains of a bloody nanny goat must have thought, it's a nasty piece of work this is, let's make sure we do everything we possibly can to keep him off the streets. And so would have tied up all loose ends, gathered as much evidence as humanly possible to ensure that the only way Maguire was getting back on the streets is if he was acquitted. I mean, this is a multiple rapist who previously had attacked several women, assaulted a pregnant woman, had held a piece of glass at the throat of one victim as he raped her, and had also beaten and raped someone, and then half-strangled her and thrown her into the sea, hanging around to make sure that she drowned. But instead, I tell you what, let's let him out. What an absolute unforgivable shambles that was, and hopefully that decision came back to and continues to haunt the powers that be responsible for it. An absolute disgrace that sickened and angered me when I was researching and writing the episodes, as I'm sure that you can probably tell. How must Mary's family and her friends and loved ones have felt, learning that her killer should have been behind bars instead of roaming free? How also must the woman who Maguire attacked, Lorna Andrew, how must she have felt at his charges being dropped, 
like she didn't matter. And then, just six years after his conviction, he was given leave to appeal his minimum term and had his minimum sentence cut by eight years to 22 years, now being able to apply for parole that much earlier. Gavin Maguire is now 63 years old and has spent more than half of that time incarcerated for horrific sexual offences and murder. He is still unquestionably a highly dangerous man, whatever age, and though as I see it, aside from that there is no question that he should ever be released, his crimes being horrendous enough that he should end his days behind bars, I simply wouldn't believe him safe to be released, ever. Because I don't believe any woman would be safe with him back on the streets. Undoubtedly also, there are other crimes that can be laid at the feet of Gavin Maguire. Such a predatory sex offender, you have to imagine, if he had such a monstrous drive to commit atrocity like I've described here, then the years he spent locked away for his crimes must have just fueled this said drive. Being denied a victim, he must have been like a time bomb just awaiting the opportunity. A study of unsolved offences during the periods that Maguire was at large in between his custodial sentences, any sex attacks upon women, any assaults or disappearances, I would imagine occurring relatively closely to his release dates also, would throw up countless crimes that he has to be a good suspect as being responsible for. Perhaps there are rapes or sexual assaults which have gone unreported. Or perhaps much worse. There are several still officially unsolved murders of sex workers up in Glasgow, at least a few that Maguire had been free at the same time as occurred, and he has a history of attempting to murder sex workers, as we've heard. There are also several disappearances of women over the same time frames. Now, you can't lay responsibility for all of them at Maguire's feet, or even definitively say that he's responsible for any of them. As I said, no further charges have ever been brought against him, and this is just me thinking out loud after all. But you just get a feeling about an individual, don't you? And if the opportunity is presented to him, then I believe he would always take it. Look at his past crimes. Look at the level of offending he had aged 17 to the level he'd reached aged 37. 20 years. Now I know he spent more than half this period incarcerated, granted. But what about the years that he was free? I don't believe in the slightest that a predator of this calibre can refrain from attacking and raping if the opportunity presented itself. I don't think that he would even want to refrain. There are at least three other reported occasions during the years he was free from prison in these two decades that he's appeared in court on serious charges. At least two of these also confirmed to be offences of a sexual nature. Are there other victims that haven't come forward that Maguire has attacked? And and this is a chilling thought, if he's previously deposited a victim into the sea, then who's to say he hasn't done so on other occasions? But this time with a victim who didn't survive, victims who may never have been found, perhaps taken out with the tide somewhere. What do you folks think? I have to say that Maguire is one of the coldest, most evil individuals I've come across whilst researching in the years that I've been doing the show and his crimes some of the most chilling. I mean, from a young age, there's so much horror here, isn't there? This is an individual who seemingly dedicated his life to it also. There's no outstanding academic achievements or skills to talk about, no history of any employment, a trade that he'd learned, any details of close friendships or successful romantic relationships with Maguire. There's nothing like that to make him stand out. He appears a total failure as a human being. Indeed, a graphologist, John Wilcox, who had studied a sample of Maguire's handwriting following his arrest, including his signature, said that Maguire was, I quote, isolated from the rest of humanity. It appears he is not particularly educated, but will probably come across as egotistical and materialistic. He is actually a weak character who is easily led, and he lacks confidence in himself. Instead of striving to achieve in life as most of us do, the one thing that makes Maguire stand out, that he devoted energies to and refined over time, is his pure evil nature. He doesn't have remorse or pity or empathy. He doesn't have regret or shame. He doesn't have the same kind of feelings that you or I have. But there's no reported evidence of this being because Maguire has any kind of mental illness. 
In all the years of his incarceration, he has never once been diagnosed as suffering from any kind of condition that affects his actions and conscious thought. Instead, it's how he's chosen to be. A monster in every true sense of the word. Pretty unforgettable tale, eh? But overall, from the episodes, and I know it's hard to put Maguire to the back of your mind where this tale is concerned, but I would hope that you think of women such as Jeanette and Doris and Lorna first and foremost, those who deserve consideration before anything. And of course, I hope that you think of Mary Julian, the young girl with a bright future who should have been able to walk home safely. I hope that you never forget any of them. I would love as always hearing your thoughts and feedback concerning the entire Monsters of Ayrshire trilogy, a tragic tale involving a real monster I thought, which of course is why I selected it. You can hear what you guys think up in the episode thread that's now up in the show's Facebook discussion group, or as always, I can be found through any of the show's social media links if you want to get in touch through any of those. Now I shall be having a week's break from the regular show to sort out the latest Patreon episode, then I shall be back with a couple of standalone cases, and then following that, it's time to begin this series arc, for it's about the traditional time of each series for us to do so. In fact, it's way past it. Love an arc, as you can probably tell. And this series chosen one, I've already begun researching, and there is quite some to it, I'm telling you. It might not be as epic as Maniac, but it's certainly up there. But that's a couple of weeks off just yet. However, these things don't bloody magic up after rubbing the lamp or anything, so I shall be cracking on with that in the meantime. I thank you very kindly for joining me here for the episodes, which although deal with some disturbing content, I hope you found both interesting and informative nonetheless. All that remains for me to say is that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you soon. Take care all, thanks very much for joining me, and goodbye for now.